1: Every week at the beginning of our episodes, we play a quick little 30-second or one-minute clip of the bonus episode from that week. We've done 35 of those bonus episodes for our patrons, and every once in a while, we like to release a full one of those episodes for people that are interested in wanting to know more about what it is we talk about during those bonus episodes. So this is bonus episode 35. If you'd like to hear the other 34 episodes that we released up to this point, feel free to join us on Patreon. There's a link in the episode description
0: listen normally i like to be right but i might not love to say i told you so the words taste over to come out of my mouth and make me choke it's like a bad joke to perceive the irony of people in designer clothes on their iphones posting selfies so please you gotta come help me i'm broken the grocery stores are empty
1: kellen last week we talked about how it's so easy to get so caught up in current events obviously in our case specifically talking about the war between Russia and Ukraine. We talk a lot in the podcast about how collapse is going to be carried out in the future and and the things that are going to happen and, and how slow it is. But then to watch things happen in real time that could have collapse consequences, consequences that intensify or speed up the process of collapse, it's really hard not to get super distracted by them or sucked into them. And and it's not necessarily a distraction. But I know I have this whole last week just been kind of consumed by what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, obviously, we've talked about the human suffering,
0: the human toll, and that alone makes it something that's worth watching and paying attention to and seeing what we can do to help. But it has so many implications for the global political climate and for our entire economic system for supply chains and our access to resources. And like we've mentioned before, in an already collapsing society where we're seeing these things in motion, current events like this, I don't think are a distraction. I mean, they are what is happening to the world at the present. So I'd almost be more worried for somebody if this didn't consume a lot of their attention.
1: Yeah, that's valid. That makes me feel better about myself. Thank you. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Um, One thing that really stood out to me that we failed to talk about last week, and the invasion had started like the day before we were recording, right? So we didn't quite have many details. But looking at it now, a week later, one thing that we didn't address, but that is a big deal, and I think that is relevant to the idea of collapse, is the refugee crisis that's developing out of this. At the time of recording this, they had said something like 880,000 people had fled Ukraine. That's not just a number of like internal migrants, but people who had actually left Ukraine for Poland or Hungary or the other surrounding countries. And like a million people, approaching a million people, that would be a lot of refugees over a long time scale, But we're talking about one single week. Yeah, that
0: is an incredible amount of people to be moving from one country to another in just one week. I really appreciate... What one of our listeners sent to us, his name's Greg. Hi, Greg. We love communicating with you. And you had brought up the point that it's kind of good news amidst all of this bad to see the way countries have opened their arms and have been so welcoming and allowing these refugees to come into their countries. And I'll be interested to see how long this outpouring of sympathy lasts. Obviously, the world is fired up about this situation, and you're seeing things everywhere, left and right, about, you know, I stand with Ukraine. People are recognizing how destructive and damaging and and irrational the decisions of the Russian government, and Putin in particular, are. And I think we're so used to seeing countries close off their borders to one another that it's been a little bit surprising, in a good way, to see everyone kind of rally around Ukraine And do what they can to help out the country and to help out the civilians, especially those who are fleeing. I hope that lasts as this conflict continues.
1: Yeah, wars can drag on for a long time. You know, you think back to to wars in the past. I mean, even just recent history, Afghanistan. But going back further, there's Vietnam or the world wars. They, They don't come and go in a flash. And so it's hard to think about, you know, what if this is still going on in a couple of months? Two months from now, that's eight times as long as it's currently been, you know, or what if it's six months or a year or three years? How will attitudes and sentiments have changed at that point, especially if the number of migrants continues to grow? I think they had said they were expecting something like four million. You know, that's nearly five times as many as have already left Ukraine. And a week in, these neighboring countries probably haven't started to see any of the long-term implications or issues of taking on that many people. Those are all issues that we talked about in our episode, specifically on mass migration. And who knows, maybe because these countries are welcoming them in with open arms, you know, maybe there's going to be a way to handle that influx really well, and there won't be a lot of issues, but it's hard to to imagine there not being some serious implications throughout Europe from this. One thing that strikes me as really interesting is, you know, because of the martial law in Ukraine, There was that restriction that said men between 18 and 60 cannot leave the country. So the vast majority of these refugees have all been women and children or very elderly. And when you think of the children and you think of the very elderly, these are all people that are going to require significant assistance. They're going into countries where they are speaking a different language. There's going to be cultural differences. There's a financial burden associated with taking care of that many people mouths to feed all of these things happening, especially in a time when war causes economic issues. There's all these questions around energy prices and what's going to happen with different currencies. Are people going to be able to get their natural gas from Russia? You know, just all this stuff. Hopefully, we don't see a lot of consequences of economic fallout throughout the rest of Europe and having that sort of be taken out on these refugees.
0: Yet I think there are just so many millions of lives that are being directly affected. And many millions more, you could argue even billions, that are being indirectly affected. And there's the deep suffering that comes from all the the pain and death and loss of war. Even if somehow, miraculously, this conflict fizzles out and doesn't last much longer, how do you rebuild from there? You know, all the damage and destruction that's taking place just with physical infrastructure. Do all those Ukrainians then need to flood back into the country and try to reclaim their homes? How do businesses continue to operate in a situation like this? You know, there's lots of definitions of collapse. But when you talk about a complex system having to rapidly simplify, or you talk about a significant decrease in population,
1: I mean, that's what a war like this has potential to cause. And we've seen this recently in other countries, you know, most notably Syria and how developed of a country Syria was and what it was kind of reduced to. And I'm just getting these flashbacks to, you know, complete cities just destroyed, reduced to nothing, you know, piles of bricks. And we're not there yet, but we are watching as Russia has kind of shifted focus and is now committing what many have said are war crimes in just shelling and bombing apartment complexes. They're bombing civilian, like you said, infrastructure. They're not sure how many civilians have died so far, but it's in the many hundreds, possibly even thousands. And it's scary. It's scary to think about what that could result in, considering that we're just one week in. And there's been a lot said about Ukrainian resolve and how they've put up much more of a, a fight and made it more difficult for Russia up to this point than what was expected. And I love it. I love the hype around that. You know, I think that there's so much to be said for, for the bravery being shown by everyone from the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, to individual civilians. It's amazing. And I, I try and picture how I would react in a similar situation. And it's hard to imagine myself being that brave. You know, people confronting Russian tanks in the street, trying to stop them, confronting Russian soldiers face to face. You know, they've got AK-47, the civilian has nothing. Just so many instances and things like that that have been seen. And it's incredible. But, But that being said, there's no doubt that Russia's military is so strong and and big and vast and just outnumbers them. And, and it feels like if Russia wants this to drag on, it's going to. And we won't spend much on this, but I think it's interesting just to consider, you know, Kellen and I were just talking about this before we started recording. What is Putin's plan in all this? What is the end game? And how does this all resolve in the end, e- even if things don't go Putin's way? Yeah, and it's hard to imagine at this point any scenario in which things
0: just go back to normal for Putin. And I don't pretend to know what to expect. But for a man in his position with his level of power that has now invaded Ukraine and you've mentioned the war crimes and has had most of the world kind of turn against him, he's he's painted himself into a corner. Which makes me personally worried that he may reach a point in which he doesn't see an end in sight. He doesn't see much incentive to stop the carnage. Perhaps he becomes desperate or perhaps he demonstrates that he's just gone beyond caring at all, which suddenly makes the threat of a nuclear attack something much less far-fetched. And I don't believe it's going to come to that, but the risk is there. And you know, you can play through a thousand different scenarios of what that might look like and how that might escalate. But I sure hope that me mentioning it here in this
1: episode is forgotten as something completely irrelevant yeah putin's got things at his disposal that he hasn't used yet nukes are one of those cyber attacks are something that he has not really utilized much in this first week which is surprising to me honestly you know i thought before going into ukraine he would have done more to cut power and wreak havoc on communications and things like that which he he stayed away from mostly But yeah, I've heard it said that that it's obvious we're we're closer now to nukes being a possibility than we've been in a long time in either of our lives. Doesn't mean that that's going to happen, but we're certainly at a heightened risk of it because there's so many areas where there could be miscommunications, missteps, miscalculations. Like you said, if Putin gets completely backed into a corner and realizes there's no way out for him, what would he do? I, I thought to myself... What would Hitler have done if he had had nukes at his disposal before he killed himself? Would he have used them? I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he still would have just ended it there and, and let humanity be. But I don't know. There's there's a lot of conversation around like Putin's mental space and where he's at neurologically and if he has some terminal illness and, and all sorts of speculations that we're not going to make here. And, and who knows? We have no idea how it all ends. But it's certainly interesting times. And I've seen a lot of talk on the subreddit about people saying like, "There's no point in trying to be prepared at all because you can't prepare for a nuclear attack." You know, drive towards the blast if if you see one. And and I I mean I agree. I don't want, I don't want to prepare for a world in which everything's a nuclear winter. I don't want to I don't want to be alive for that. But at the same time, I think a lot of people need to kind of calm down and, and realizing that, in my opinion, I guess a single nuke being fired doesn't mean that all the nukes are going to be fired. And I think a lot of people kind of feel that way, that if if, there's, if ever a nuke flies, then the whole world's going to be a nuclear winter, basically. And I think there are more opportunities for de-escalation, and, and it's still good to be prepared. It's good to be prepared for cyber attacks. It's good to be prepared for small-scale nuclear war. It's good to be prepared for anything and everything that we've talked about on the podcast. But anyway, we actually didn't intend to uh, have this whole episode be about Russia and Ukraine, so we're going to move on from that now. And talk about something else that happened this week that was unfortunately overshadowed because of the conflict in Ukraine. And that is the the next segment of this IPCC report came out in which they clarify some of the severe consequences and things that they're expecting from climate change here in the next several decades. Yeah, it seems like that scientific reticence that you had
0: mentioned and talked about in the past is definitely diminishing because the language here is very strong. They indicate and argue kind of over and over again that we're already in a world of trouble, that climate change is upon us. We're going to suffer the consequences of it. And while they advocate that, yes, we still need to cut emissions and dial things back so that it doesn't grow much worse, a lot of the language is about
1: adaptation and the fact that we need to adapt for all of the awful things that are coming our way. Yeah, there's a quote here from the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Who said adaptation saves lives as climate impacts worsen and they will, scaling up investments will be essential for survival. Delay means death. So like you said, they're kind of ramping up the the volume and just the bluntness with which they're speaking, which is refreshing and frightening. But yeah, they, they talk a lot about adaptation here and mitigation. One thing that really caught my eye was that they talk a lot about faster than expected. And they just keep saying, like, everything that we expected, it's all happening so much quicker than that. And the gap is closing in. The amount of time that we have to fix this is lessening. And it's frustrating because they're still talking about, like, one5 Degrees Celsius as being this benchmark. And and like in order to stop 1.5, we have to do all this stuff. And to me, it just seems like 1.5 is a foregone conclusion, right? But they're very blunt about the impacts of what passing 1.5 degrees Celsius is going to do. And they're also very blunt about the cost that just financially
0: it's going to cost a lot. They talk about cities in certain areas needing to invest in like cooling areas to help people through heat waves and coastal cities either need to kind of rebuild all this infrastructure or they just need to abandon those areas. And they acknowledge and admit that in some cases, the costs might not be worth it. The cost might just be too high. And so that plays into the conversations we've had around catabolic collapse, that when our problems become too expensive to solve, things begin to kind of collapse in
1: on themselves And we struggle just to maintain a normal standard of life. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Basically saying there's all these things we can do to adapt. It's going to be very expensive, so expect that. But also some things are just not going to be worth it. The cost is going to be too high to even implement, which means that some of the consequences are just inevitable. The director of the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center and a co-author of the report said, adaptation is not a get out of jail free card. There are limits to adaptation, we should reduce greenhouse gas emissions because if we don't, it's going to get really bad. And they talk a lot here about how climate change is going to m- disproportionately affect the marginalized minorities, poorer people. They're saying the solutions that we come up with are really need to consider social justice. and it's just awful to think about because you know not only are we not really doing enough to curb climate change, we're not really doing anything at all, I certainly don't think we're, as things get worse, going to prioritize. Minorities. It's just not in sort of our our playbook, right? It's not how wealthy people who have the power to make changes act. You know, the elite are not going to go out of their way, most likely, to help mitigate the effects on the marginalized. They're going to do everything they can to protect themselves. Part of the summary of the report said, "...without inclusive economic development in Africa, for example, climate change is expected to push 40 million more people into extreme poverty by 2030." But time is running out to make the society-wide transformations needed. The decisions society makes in the next decade will set the climate path to come.
0: Which, think of that, the next decade, like 10 years. Or that statement that you just read, by 2030, right? Eight years from now, 40 million people being pushed to extreme poverty.
1: And it was just barely 2020. Like, you know, it, it feels like 2020 was yesterday. It was two years ago. We've only got eight years left in this decade. I even think of like 2016, right? That was six years ago when when President Trump was elected, for example. That also feels semi-recently, but more than half of a decade has passed. So 2030 is going to come in the blink of an eye. So they're talking about extremely
0: negative impacts that are happening extremely soon. There is so much urgency here. And the article that we've been referencing ties that point off really well with a statement at the end. This is from an individual named Hans Otto Portner, who apparently is co-chair of the IPCC working group that generated this report. And he says, there is a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future on the planet. And that feels like a gentle way of saying just about the most
1: alarming thing you can possibly say. And there was another quote that I liked. To piggyback off of that one, earlier in the article, and by the way, this is a the Reuters article. that was kind of their summary of this IPCC report. But Going back to Gutierrez, he said, Unchecked carbon pollution is forcing the world's most vulnerable on a frog march to destruction. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. So I thought that was really s- strong and really well put. Basically, the IPCC is saying, as a society, climate change is going to wreck us. And the lack of leadership in doing anything to improve this situation, to mitigate it, is criminal. Those are strong words from the IPCC, especially when compared to the IPCC of just a decade ago. So as we've said many times and as we'll continue to say, we live in interesting times. The future of civilization is going to be fascinating. It's going to be so intriguing, I feel like, to, to watch as, as it happens as we continue to carry on. What are the choices that people make? the choices that governments make, what choices can we make. It feels like as individuals, there's not that much that we can do. I know Kellen and I get frustrated a lot feeling that way, but we're going to keep doing what we can do, at least just talking about it week by week here in these episodes. And then obviously as well in the main podcast, but we are really grateful for the support that we get from all our listeners. We hope you're well. We hope that The knowledge of collapse isn't too heavy for you. We hope you're finding ways to be fulfilled and happy. And I I know it might sound weird, but me and Kellen have conversations pretty often talking about our listeners and hoping and wanting to make sure that we're doing our part to take into account and care about people's well-being. There's not much that we can do because we don't get to talk to people one-on-one a whole lot, but we do appreciate the people that reach out, the comments, the messages that we get, the emails. try and respond to those and be really responsive so if you have a thought a question don't hesitate to reach out